Good morning. It's uh, great seeing you and having you along today. So excited to, to be here with you. And you know, as I said last night, this is like a family reunion every year. And it's just a joy to, to be with our, our CB family. And, um, you know, I was just commenting with Dad last night how we've been so blessed with Pastor Peter Lord here. And just over these last few years, um, you know, Bob Mumford, Charles Simpson, Gene Evans, and just, you know, we, we felt there is wisdom in this generation that has gone before, and we don't want to be dismissive of, of what God has, has done. And so, you know, our, our theme this morning, oh, um, my family couldn't be here, but I, I sort of brought a picture of them um, before we get into serious stuff. This is the portable sorority. It's my destiny. It's my destiny in life to be surrounded by beautiful women, and uh, this is they. So, yeah, they uh, all wish that they could be here this morning. So our theme is rock solid, standing on this rock, building for permanence in times of transition. And I'm guessing that if if I say I, I feel like we are in transitional times, I'm guessing that's not a surprising statement. For most of us, you might amen that. And so this this morning, um, we're going to try and identify four permanent stones, four permanent markers, four permanent things to build on, regardless of what age we find ourselves in. And so that's the heart of the message, and that comes at the very end. And I'm going to take a lot of time to put that in context. So this is a very short sermon with an incredibly long introduction. So I promise if you walk with me through this, we will get there eventually. Now, in Scotland, where I live, if you drive through the countryside, you see all these pastures that have these hand-built stone walls setting off all these boundaries. And it's amazing. It's a particular building technique of sort of this dry stone masonry in that there's no mortar holding these things together. And they're just placed very carefully, stone by stone, built. And they've been there for generations. And every time I drive through there and see those, I'm, I'm just deeply uh, appreciative of this idea of retaining what God has built. I so loved last night us saying the Apostles' Creed together. We live in a day that tends to not care about the ancient, ancient boundary markers. God's Word tells us, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. We live at a time that has a bulldozer complex and feels like if we can just get rid of this past stuff, maybe we'll build something beautiful. And I hear God saying, no, what he has already built, there are some things that are eternal, some things that are permanent, some things that are transcendent. And so I want to, this morning, identify four of those, four ancient landmarks set by the fathers, established by God that we don't need to tamper with at all. But to do that, I want to put this into a little bit of context for us. And I have a premise 
and a problem just to set this up. The premise is this, that in times of transition, we gain clarity by returning to the permanent markers God has established. In transitional moments, we cling to those things that are certain. Start there to interpret or understand the uncertainty rather than starting and getting lost in the cloud of uncertainty and then trying to find the permanent things. No, cling to the permanent things. Now, that's the premise, but here's the problem. We face emotive and cognitive constraints as we seek to faithfully engage our world with the gospel. In other words, we feel confused and we don't know what's going on. Emotionally, we're disturbed at the state of things. Cognitively, in our minds, conceptually, we don't get it. And so we wake up in a world we don't quite understand. And so before identifying these four permanent things, I want to try an interpretation of, at least through one particular lens, of this is kind of where we are. Now, to put this in context, I, I want to ask this question, why? Why is it that we have difficulty understanding in our minds and, and feeling so confused about this day in which we find ourselves? Well, let's do a little walk through the years. This, this is kind of washed out. It's sort of hard, hard to read there, but this is the 1950s. Do any of these faces look familiar to any of you? You recognize some of this? Now, how many, when you see this, you kind of feel comfortable. You feel that and you go, ah, yeah, I, I know you do. My dad and I have this ongoing conversation. And so basically what you're hearing this morning is the fruit of us having talked for the last 10 years or so about asking this question, where are we? So here's the 1950s. Now, what about this picture? Do any of these, does, does this feel familiar at all to anyone here? Yeah, absolutely. Now we're coming slightly closer as we step through the decades. Still very familiar faces. These, these 1970s. Here's the 1980s. Oh yeah, somebody said. Loving those 80s. Here's the 90s. Getting closer to our present moment right here. Here's the 2000s, more familiar faces. And uh, here we are today. This is just us. Now, what's all this about? What is this walk through these decades? Well, let, let's, let's play a little game. Let me ask you a question. Um, how many of you, if you just walk through this, the 50s, were your favorite decade? Oops, wrong direction. Okay. Here we go. We are going all over the map here. Okay. We're, we're trying to get to the 1950s. Okay. Back to the future. Just climb into the time machine. No. 
that technology and how it works. And then there's the rest of the time. Okay, here we go. Now we're, we're back in. So, 1950. Now, as we walk through this, here's the question. I want you to raise your hand when I get to your favorite decade. Okay? If you look at the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. How many of you, the 50s is your favorite decade so far out all that? Okay? Oh, you said yes, but you're not raising your hand. Okay. Yeah, 50s. All right. 60s? 60s, anyone? Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is good. Okay. 70s. Anybody? Yeah, okay. There's one in every crowd. Yeah. That's when you got saved. Exactly. We're going to come back to that. That's right. 80s. Anybody? Paul, boy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the 80s. The 90s. Anybody? 90s. Nobody for the 90s. 2000s. This is your favorite decade. Two. No? Wow. 2010s. Yeah, okay. All right. Dita loves the 2010s. So here's the deal. I would suggest that, oops, I keep hitting the wrong button. Reverse angle. There we go. Every one of these decades is a mixture. Um, some of us think the 50s were the good old days. Um, well, it was mixed, wasn't it? I mean, little black boys and girls couldn't drink from the same water fountain, could they? The 60s. The 60s, uh, were they good or bad? As a sexual revolution, but it was also when the charismatic movement started. So were they good or bad? The 70s. Was that good or was that bad? It was Watergate and stagflation. I mean, it takes talent to create double-digit inflation, unemployment, and interest rates. However, that was when CBU started and some of our most powerful conferences were in the 70s. The 80s, was that good or bad? Well, we had Reagan growing the GDP and defeating the Soviets, but um, we also had Madonna leading our youth into wherever she leads them. Um, that's kind of messed up. The 90s, um, who said 90s were their favorite decade? Somebody, anybody? Nobody? I'll put myself down for that. That's when I got married. Most of my daughters were born then. I loved the 90s, absolutely loved them. As a matter, that was when God opened the door into Ukraine and some of CBU's most effective international ministry happened in the 1990s. Um, you know, the 2000s, the 2010s. And so as we walk through this, sometimes in our hearts and minds we have this, well, if we could just get back to the good old days. You know, if we could, what we'd discover is that they probably weren't as good or as golden as they are in our minds. Every decade has those positive dimensions. Every decade has stuff we wish we could push out of the deal. And so what happens is we wake up today and we're in a world we don't understand. Now, this is one way I illustrate it. What's the difference in the lives of 18-year-olds? Well, in 1944, they were liberating Europe and in 2016 crying because Hillary has lost. That's a big change. And so for those of you, as Peter mentioned last night, that are older, I just overheard this conversation. Carlton, you're not old. Nobody's old. Old is anybody who's older than you. You're not there yet. So, but you're on your way. All of us are on our way. So 
here's the deal. We wake up in this world where we have emotional dissonance. We feel like something is wrong. We have cognitive dissonance. We don't understand our world. And I want to try to explain why this is. And to do that, I'm going to borrow this, this idea of the Rip Van Winkle effect. You remember Rip Van Winkle? Yes? He goes to sleep. He's this lazy man. Go, well, I'm just walking into the forest, falls asleep, wakes up 20 years later, comes back into town and... You know, his, his wife's died. You know, the, the, the world has changed and his children have grown up and, you know, this town's different and, you know, a few people kind of remember. He's woken up in a different world. But the, the big thing that's different, if you remember this story, the big thing that's different from Rip Van Winkle is what? When he went to sleep, he was in a British colony. When he woke up, he was in the American Republic. In other words, it was the exact same town, but the context of his existence changed fundamentally. He woke up in a world he didn't understand. And as Dad and I have been talking over these last 10 years or, or so, I, I think there's kind of a generational Rip Van Winkle effect. Some of you feel like you've woken up in a world that you don't quite understand. And to wrap our minds around that, there's this idea of culture. Um, Peter Lord mentioned culture last night. And anthropologists, when they think about culture, they do it in two levels. They think of external culture and internal culture. External culture is observable artifacts, things that you can see. Internal culture has to do with the values, the beliefs, meaning and interpretation, and assumptions that people carry around on the inside of them. And so, for example, if I saw my dad blink his right eye like this, that's an external artifact. That's absolutely observable. But I really have no idea what that means. He might have just gotten a gnat in his eye. He might be winking at me because my fly is open. Or, you know, he, he, he might just have a nervous condition in his eye. Those are three very different interpretations of one external visible artifact. And so when we wake up in this new reality and that we find ourselves in today, it's not just that the external culture has changed. We drive different cars. We have iPhones and iPads. There's technology. But that's just the superficial stuff. The real thing that has changed around us is that the internal culture of values and beliefs Meaning and the assumptions that people have are fundamentally different. That's why when you have a conversation with a millennial, even though you're both speaking English, you're saying, we are not communicating. It's not because the external words don't make sense. It's because this internal culture has fundamentally changed. The world has changed. Not only external artifacts, but also internal meanings. Now, in 1982, there was a guy named John Nesbitt who wrote a book called Megatrends. Some of you may have, have picked that up and, and read that. He identified 10 big megatrends that were changing the world. And there, you know, s several of these, it was a, a bestseller, several of these are, are continuing and, 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 and ongoing. And I want to just identify three megatrends that are changing or have already changed the world in which we're living. Again, just trying to help us understand the context so that we can identify these four permanent markers. So the first one is that we've moved from an either-or to a both-and world. Um, and so 
ice cream is a good picture of that. I remember as a boy, my mom would bring home a box of ice cream, and it was Neapolitan. You had chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry all in the same box. And that was variety for us. But then along comes Baskin-Robbins, and you've got 31 flavors. And we live in a Baskin-Robbins world. It's not just vanilla. It's not just Neapolitan. It's a Baskin-Robbins world of just about anything. There are so many flavors of experience. When I was growing up, there were good guys and there were bad guys. There was the United States and there was the Soviet Union. And we were all afraid of the communists, and it was nice and clean. We could talk about the evil empire, and we could talk about the good guys, but today, understanding who the good guys are and who the bad guys are is not nearly so nice and neat and packaged. You can't even draw geographical boundaries. Sometimes within one nation, there might be good and bad. Same thing in the church world. The world I grew up in, the world my dad grew up in, in Macray, Georgia, there was a Presbyterian church. There was a Baptist church. There was um, a Methodist church. And then across the street, there was a Pentecostal church. And that was it. Um, but now, churches come in so many varieties of flavor. It's, it's like going to the mall. You can walk through the mall and find any kind of shop. Churches like that now. We don't live in an either-or world anymore. It is this multiple-choice both and. Now, if that was it, that would, that would be interesting, but, but it goes a bit deeper than that. Um, this is especially true related to information. Some of you grew up in a world where you primarily got your information from Walter Cronkite or one of the major news networks telling you, here's the deal, this is what you think. You watch the news, you read the newspaper, and you kind of know what's going on in the world. That's not how people get information today. We have this thing called Google, and you can, through using the Internet, what happens is that people find information that confirms what they already think. Normally, this happens. This is called confirmation bias. Facebook is in a, a, a big uh, bit of controversy right now relative to this recent election because of how the algorithm works. Most people in their Facebook feed end up with information that agrees with their own perspective. And so we find ourselves in these filter bubbles of confirmation bias of being surrounded by views that are very similar to ours. And so for many of us, we end up not having good conversations with people from a different perspective. Um, let me say it a different way. In this recent election, if you don't have a good friend who voted differently from you, your circle is too small. And you live in an information bubble. You're surrounded by people who confirm to you exactly what you already think, um, and which is reassuring, but it also means that you have no real influence. Um, if you're unengaged with anyone who thinks differently from you, then you're just basically speaking in an echo chamber. But because of how the Internet works, most of us, this is how we live our lives. And technology sort of affirms this. Another way that we've gone from either or to both and in our nation is regarding faith. You grew up in a world where a Christian worldview, even if Jesus wasn't followed, it could kind of be presumed. That is no longer the case. We live in a world where plurality is assumed. 
our faith, Christianity, does not have a position of priority at the table any longer. That day is over. But the issue is not so much all these these other religions. If you look at this chart right here, to help us, this is just in the last six years, since 2008. This is religious identification in the United States. Look at the, the Christian religion down here. It's gone from 80% down to 75%. But this middle column is non-Christian religion. This is Hinduism. This is Islam. This is uh, other faiths, but th they're not Christian. Now, if you look at that, it's not growing at all. Where's the growth? It's over here on those who say none. It's gone from 14% to, to 19, um, almost 20, 20%. It's a 33% increase in just eight years. Um, our issue is not Islam in this nation. It's not Hinduism. It's not Buddhism. Our issue is a growing, massive secularism. The worldview that dominates and the, the, the people around us, they do not hold Christian presuppositions, values, or assumptions. Um, and so this is the world that we live in now. So one megatrend is this from either or for both and. A second megatrend relates to demographics. I'm just going to give you a couple of statistics. Now, demographers think in terms of generations. So we've got the greatest generation. These are the guys that won World War II for us. Praise God for that generation. Then the silent generation, the, the baby boomers, um, Generation X, and millennials. And so um, I'm looking around the room, and the, the youngest of us here today were our Generation X. You know, I was born at the beginning of that generational wave. Some of you were baby boomers. Some of you were silent generation. And so... These, if you think about when these people were born right here, they could be born in the same town, same state, same region of the country, but they have grown up in very different worlds. Someone born in 1900 and, and 2000, th that, that's just a very, very different reality. And so as we're looking at demographics, this is a massive change that is happening by 2015. In, the, in 2015, 50.2% of babies born in the United States were minorities. Um, by 2045, whites will be less than 50% of the American population. Now, this is a megatrend, and this is irreversible. This is happening. This has happened and is happening. And so this, this is a picture right here of the American population out through 2060. The percentage of whites is going down, and... Um, the, the big increase here is, is the number of Hispanics, but you, you can see how by the time we get to 2060, this nation is an ethnically diverse, even much more so than it is now. And I'm looking at the room, and this is a reasonably white crowd that's here today. And so this is something that is changing the world in which we live. Now, Related to this recent vote, I'm not making any political points today whatsoever, but I'm making a couple of observations. Trump got 8% of the black vote. Hillary got 88%. Trump got 29% of the Hispanic vote. Hillary got 65%. And so when we look at these voting patterns, we see significant ethnic variation. Now, 
there's also this phenomenon of millennials, 75 millennials. Now, these were the ones born from about 1982 to approximately 2000. Now, look at this. 80% of evangelicals in the United States voted for Trump. With 18 to 29-year-olds, Clinton defeated Trump 55 to 37%. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that there's a massive disconnect between evangelical Christianity in this nation and the millennial generation. This is a megatrend we need to understand. Now, let me be as clear as I can. We are not going to win millennials by leading with politics and then hoping that after we can convert them to our political perspective, then maybe they'll pick up the gospel somewhere along the way. Uh, it might be that your politics are a massive barrier to reaching millennials with the gospel. If we lead with politics, we will absolutely lose. So that's the truth. Um, that might not be comfortable for us, but that's the deal. Um, I mentioned that because 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. This millennial trend, though, paints what the future is going to look like. However, there is hope. There is a point of opportunity, and it's this. Millennials are looking for genuine community. And the church can be a welcoming community rooted in ancient truth. This is a point of strength by which we can engage this younger generation. Now, if you look at these two dimensions, welcoming community and rooted in ancient truth, sometimes churches err on one side or the other. You can imagine a very welcoming community that is disconnected from truth. It's welcoming, but, it has, but it's not rooted in the gospel of Jesus. That church is not going to win. Now, on the other side, you can imagine a church rooted in truth, but it's just not a welcoming community. It might be right, but it's not loving. And that church is not going to win. So the third megatrend is this. It's geography. In 1915, 80% of Christians lived in Europe and North America. In 2015, only 40% of Christians live in Europe and North America. 60% of Christians alive today live in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Now, there are lots of implications that arise out of this, but just one thing is this. What this means is that we cannot interpret how the gospel is doing based on what's happening in the United States and, and Europe um, because this is a minority of where Christians are now. There are more Christians in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. That's where the center of gravity is for this global movement we're a part of. Our difficulty is that we tend to interpret reality from where we are. Now, that's the context. And what I want to do now that we've sort of painted this picture of why we often feel like we have woken up in this world that we can't understand is that what do we do? How do we respond to so much change? So I want to give you four perspectives of permanence for navigating transitional times. I want to give you a theological perspective a Christological perspective, an ecclesiological perspective, and a missiological perspective. These are four permanent marker stones you can use to navigate transitional times. So first, a theological perspective, very simply this. Regardless of what day you wake up, what year or what decade it is, 
remember the godness of God. We just sang a few minutes ago, how great is our God. My soul gets disheartened when Christians tend to forget how great our God is. Now, we could just pause there and do a whole sermon on the greatness of God. He is that great. Great are you, Lord. I just mentioned here two dimensions of his greatness, his omniscience and his sovereignty. His omniscience means that he knows everything. He knows the future as well as he does the past. There is no question mark in the heart or mind of God regarding what the future looks like. There is zero anxiety in heaven. Jesus is on the throne today just like he was yesterday and just like he will be tomorrow. In his knowledge, in his foreknowledge, we as believers can have absolute and supreme security and confidence. Who's going to win the election in 2020, 2024, 2028? I have no idea. I don't even know who will be running, but God does, and he's already told us because he knows it, and the future sits in his hand as much as the past. And so as believers, we can have great confidence in our God. But in addition to that, not only does God know the future, He's also in control of the future. Now, we're humans, and humans tend to have a God complex. We tend to sometimes overestimate our own capacities and what we can get done. And it's true that human initiative and proactivity and action make a difference. That's how God has set up the world. But behind all that, And surrounding all of that is God and his sovereignty. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 3, The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Christians have to remember God runs the show. Isaiah 40, he picks up nations, he drops them down. He puts kings in place and he removes them. Our God is the one who is sovereign, he is Lord, he is king, and he is running the show. And when you wake up tomorrow, you let this fill your heart and you gain confidence because you know your God is in control. And he is absolutely great. So the first permanent marker for us is a theological perspective to interpret transitional times. Start with the godness of God. Start with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He is almighty. And there is no equivocation, no concern, no anxiety in heaven. All right, marker number two. A Christological perspective. Remember the King. Jesus is Lord. This is the confession that filled the book of Acts. Think about the book of Acts. Think about this remarkable period of gospel growth. Now, Paul engaged politics to a degree. What was that degree? Telling us to pray for those who were in leadership so that we could live peaceable lives. Paul's passion was freedom to the degree that he could get on with gospel ministry. But the confession that filled the book of Acts was Jesus is Lord. Now, this is a counter-revolutionary kind of statement 
against any political setup on planet Earth. The lordship of Jesus transcends whatever human governments are temporarily on the stage. Um, think back to the changes since the Bible was written and the New Testament canon was closed. Empires come, empires go. Uh, it's like we live, you know, I live in this nation now where we have a monarch. And um, she can, there's a new prime minister. The prime minister comes in and meets her. And, you know, the prime minister, th these are the, the popularly elected people, the, the equivalent kind of, 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 of our presidents. And, you know, I think there's been something like seven or eight prime ministers during her reign, maybe more than that. And so the new prime minister comes in, and in Elizabeth's mind, she's thinking, oh, okay, you might last five years, maybe ten if you're as talented as Tony Blair, but I'm queen. And so in our, our faith, in our Christian reality, we have two. Human empires come, human empires go, but the lordship of Jesus Christ is perpetual. He reigns, he is Lord, and the ultimate destiny is that he will be honored. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And whoever occupies the White House does not change this deal right here. The purpose of God is going to prevail. Number three. An ecclesiological perspective. Remember the church. Um, attitudes towards the church change about as often as women's fashions. Um, just watch watch hem lengths on, on women's dresses. You know, they, it's like a yo-yo. It's up and down and you just, just you, you never know. Some of you have grown up and you have had an amazing church experience. You're deeply, deeply appreciative for the things of the church. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you have been caught up in political power struggles and we live in this duality that the church is the bride of Christ, and yet the church is deeply imperfect because it's made up of people. Uh, but we have to allow our perspective to be shaped by Scripture. And remember, first of all, that Jesus purchased the church. He told these elders in Ephesus, look, take care of this flock, this church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. He loves it so much, he died for it. It's his bride. Number two, he made this amazing promise. I will build my church. If you want to know what God's doing, he's always doing that. Any day you wake up, that's the agenda of God. He is building his church. That's never negotiable. That's always happening. That's a permanent marker regardless of what's happening in the culture around you. And number three, Jesus is using his church. It's his body, Ephesians 1, told, it's his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, most of us, based on my church experience, I don't know that I would like, yeah, the, the, the church is the fullness of Jesus. Uh, but, but that was Paul's concept. He had this amazingly high view of the church, and through the church, God is revealing wisdom to powers. God has a big purpose for his church. He loves it so much he died for it, and he's building it. 
And the last marker is this. A missiological perspective. I've been to the missile field. Uh, you know, in the military, in war, there's this thing called the fog of war. And in the fog of war, communications can get broken. And a particular unit might not be able to, to get new instructions or new commands. Well, what do you do? Well, the last command you received is the one that's in operation. You go back to this is what we were told, this is what we're going to do. So as Christians, when we feel lost, when we feel like we've woken up in a world we don't understand, when we're confused, go back to the mission. What is it that our God has given us to do? Well, it's real clear Jesus told us to go to the lost, and he told us to go to the nations. Luke chapter 15 is one of my favorite but also most challenging scriptures. Jesus tells three stories, a story of a man who lost a sheep, a story of a woman who lost a coin, and a story of a father who lost his son. And this, these three stories are set in the context of a conversation that he's having with the Pharisees. And they were all bothered that Jesus was hanging out with lost people so much. So he told them these three stories, and then he wrote them into the last story. The Pharisees are the older brother, the one who should have been out looking for the prodigal, but actually was sitting at home, not coming into the party and having a bad attitude. All of that is a long point. Jesus is telling us, go to the lost. Father's heart is for the lost. And Jesus tells us, go to the nations. Go to the nations. The nations are always on the heart of God. We have been blessed. We have been blessed with so much. God has entrusted us with truth, with power, with spirit. He's, he's blessed us with, with freedom and, and capacities. And in this nation, there are some amazing churches. There are amazing people. Believers, just when I come back here from Europe, I just land in the United I just feel encouraged, you know, not because I think we get a big IT, but because Christians in this nation are so beautiful, so kind, so gentle, so strong. It deeply encourages me. It gives me, gives me hope for our world. The Christians in this nation give me hope. But that comes with this responsibility that we have to remember the mission, to go to the lost and go to the nations. And it's interesting. My dad and I, in the process of this, we were from Tubi, we departed, and we, we, we were, were birthed in this aha moment in this conference ministry. And there was this time where going to the nations was just kind of started almost as an afterthought, and how this has, has become this, this primary thing for us, that this non-negotiable that we keep coming back to. And, and I'm like, Dad, why is that? Well, it's, it's very much dialed in to these instructions that Jesus gave us. Go to the lost and go to the nations. Now, the problem with missions is that some of us have an interesting backer complex. The ball could adjust to the bat or the bat to the ball. Now, my dad played softball and was like a, a major league softball player. Now, imagine him taking a swing at a softball and missing and then going up to the pitcher and complaining and saying, hey, pitcher, you didn't hit the bat with your ball. 
I was holding it there. You're supposed to hit the bat. And the pitcher's saying, no, 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 no. I throw the ball. You're supposed to adjust the bat to wherever the ball is. See, here's the deal. Some of us are like that first conversation. We want to take the mission of Jesus and fit it into our lives. We have our life, and we see this mission, so we want to take this mission, and we want it to adjust to us. And God says, no, it's actually the other way. I have given you a pitch. It's called this mission. It's your job to adjust your life to the mission. We talk about the lordship of Jesus. That's what it means. Now, the slide's a little dark, but building on that last thought, as we're trying to understand the day that we live in, sometimes this is a mistake Christians can make. Based on current realities, they start questioning God or Christ or the church or mission. In other words, some people tend to interpret God based on what's going on around them. And so they end up with a God who changes by the decade. Or they interpret the mission of God based on what's going on without him. And so they, they end up with nothing substantive to stand on whatsoever. Rather than interpreting God through the lens of our current cultural realities, it should be like this. We interpret our current cultural realities through the identity of God, his greatness, through Jesus and his lordship, through this church that our Lord is building, and through the mission that God has given us. If you want to understand the world in which we live, start with what we know. We know who God is. We know who Jesus is. We know what God's doing with his church, and we know the mission of God. If we start with these permanent markers, we will end up with amazing clarity regarding what's going on today. Now, there's a lot about this year 2016 that I just don't understand at all, but I do know who God is. I know who Jesus is. I know what God's doing with his church, and I understand the mission of God. This idea of going back to 1950, 60, 70, sorry, that ship has sailed. We are not going back. God is walking forward. And so the future will be different than the past. That doesn't mean that it won't be good. Just like the 50s was mixed. The 60s was mixed. The 70s was mixed. The 80s was mixed. The 2020s, the 2030s, the 2040s. I don't know what's going on then. But I do know it's going to be mixed. God will be unfolding his agenda. And the world's going to be messed up. Those two things are perpetually always true. And so this feeling that you have that the world's not like it was in 1955, it's okay. That's okay. It's normal for you to have that feeling. But it doesn't mean that God has taken the last hank of care. It doesn't mean he's packed up bags and has exited stage left. He's not. He's still unfolding his agenda. So how do we close this? Do not move the ancient landmarks of your father's assault. God himself is the ultimate permanent 
reality. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is building his church. He has been, he is, and he's going to keep doing that. In the mission of Jesus, to go to the lost and go to the nations, this is a permanent marker. And if we can live in that and inhabit that and allow it to inhabit us, regardless of the cultural confusion around us, we'll be walking right in the center of God's will. Now, I hope that that is encouraging for you. I know that that's not easy. As we started, it's cognitively difficult and emotionally difficult. But it simply requires that we trust our God because he is the master. So as we close, let's go to God in prayer and just ask for his help. Our Father, we thank you for this morning together. We thank you for this, this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess that we often feel like this Rip Van Winkle effect. Lord, we feel like we have woken up in a world that we do not fully understand. Lord, we, we just don't get it. And it's hard sometimes, Father, we confess, in the midst of all this, to trust you. But, Father, we thank you for these permanent boundary markers. Lord, a theological perspective, this, the godness of God. This Christological perspective, remembering Jesus, our Lord. This ecclesiological perspective, remembering what you're up to with this church and this mission of going to the lost and going to the nations. Father, I pray that in these very confusing days in which we're living, Lord, as we find ourselves swept up in these mega trends that, that we don't understand and that seem irreversible and that seem to be changing this world around us, God, I pray that you would remind us that the Lord is in the heavens and that you do whatever you please. You are the Lord God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it feels like we've been thrown into the fire, we thank you. There is a fourth man with us in that fire. Lord, we thank you that you are with your church. You are with your people. You are with us, oh God. You're with each generation. You have not left us alone. You're unfolding your purpose. And I pray, oh God, that your con that confidence fill our hearts as we reflect on your greatness, your splendor, and your might. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And we rest in you. Thank you, Lord. You're a good God and we love you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.